uh, two. About said fifteen, and this is our fifteenth week in it. Um, so Genesis chapter two. Our text this morning will be verses eighteen through twenty-five. This morning we continue our study in Genesis two. So far in our study, we have covered up to verse 17, as I said. We said last week we were moving into the placement of man. This brings with it shadows of things to come. Man created outside the garden and land of Eden is, is taken and given Eden itself. <clears throat> Eden's food shadows the milk and honey of the land of promise. It will also point us to the abundant supply of the highest heaven... And we will see the covenant made with our first father and that this was a covenant to be renewed through worship. From this we learn man is placed in the garden. Adam had a job to do. Adam was in covenant relationship with God. Adam is given sacramental physical memorials of this covenant and Adam was set to lose life, not gain it. This test points to our testator. We now will see that God sees sees the need of man and reveals that need to Adam in a unique way. Rather than God telling Adam that he needed to have a helper and companion, God shows Adam this. After pronouncing that it was not good that man be alone, he brings the land Adam, Adam animals, at least part of them, to Adam. He has Adam name the animals, revealing their male and femaleness. He was only one half of the puzzle and now he longed for a companion. This is the grace of God. He not only tells us that we need this or that, but gives us the desire of our hearts to long for that which he wishes to give us. What a good God we have, right? Amen. So from this we will learn, God proclaims something not good for the first time. God makes man a helper, God builds desire in Adam for what he was going to give him. Adam claims dominion. God formed his son's bride. This is a picture of the gospel. The first wedding takes place. This leads to the formation of new families, multiplying through dividing, and they were naked and not ashamed. Can't wait to get to that one. If you will, stand to honor the reading of God's word this morning. And remain standing as we ask God the Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of His Word. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18, the Word of the Lord reads, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper compatible to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called the, the each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. For God, for Adam, but for Adam, there was not found a helper compatible to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man... He made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. 
thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us go once again to our Lord in prayer. Blessed and holy God, we thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Lord, we love that you see our need and you fulfill it. God, that you grant to us desires for the good things that you provide for your people. And we thank you, God, for this beautiful picture of Christ and his church. And how, Lord God, through these things you've delivered a people unto yourself. God, a people that can never be lost. A people that you even died for. We praise you and we thank you for these. May we rejoice in these truths and may they change us, God, ever to be more into the image of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it is in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God proclaimed something not good for the first time in verse 18b. We see that God did not find man's uh, solitude good. Now this means we are made for social interaction. To be a person who shuns society and interaction with others is to claim that God was wrong here. Now, here's the thing that we need to think of. Now, if you're one of those people that don't like crowds, I'm not talking to you. I didn't, you didn't come to my mind while I was writing this sermon. What I'm thinking about is more along the monastic and the hermit movement in the early church where men would say, I'm going to go devote my whole life to God and I'm going to shun society and all good things and I'm going to go live in a cave somewhere and not bathe or be productive. That's all contrary to chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. Man is made to be a social creature. He is made to have relation, especially with his wife and his children, and he is to be productive in society. So the whole idea that we would separate ourselves out of that situation to go and, and devote ourselves to God is poppycock. Just that's the best way I can say it. And so know that. So if you're not one of those who likes crowds and being around people, then you need to work on that a little bit, right? And then the crowds need to be more uh, along your liking. You know, they need to change a little bit too, maybe. So what we need to see is it's not good, right? This not good was not evil, right? There's no evil in the world yet. So let's not put in, we can inject ideas of sin. God is not saying it's sinful for man to be alone. He's saying it's not good. It's not profitable. What we see is God is saying Adam is not complete. Adam is not complete. Right? Man needed something that was not intrinsic to his being to complete him. There was a thing that was needed to complete Adam that could not be provided by Adam. Does that make sense? He couldn't provide what was needed for himself. Something outside of himself needed to be provided. This means then that what God does to fix this problem is at the heart of not being good. Now there's a lot of voices in the Reformed Church that would say, no, 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 the very reason, the very reason for marriage is to have children. Now that is a reason, but the very reason for, for marriage, the very reason for the woman being created is companionship. Companionship. There will be a day, husband, that your wife will not ever be able to provide you any more children physically. Y'all can adopt, y'all can do all those things. But listen to me. The very reason that you have your wife is that when you're 90 and you're about senile and can't take care of yourself, she's going to be there and she'll still listen to your stupid stories she has heard a thousand times. Why? Because she's connected to you. She is a part of you. She loves you. If you do it right, 
If you do it right, that's what it's going to look like. That's what it's going to look like. And God says it's glorious. God says it's glorious. And so we have those seasons in our lives, and we need to rejoice in each one of them. And one of the ways we do that is we see that Adam being alone was what was not good. Then companionship was the main purpose for the creation of women. God could have made another man. Have you thought about that? He was alone if it was just loneliness. He could have created another man. I enjoy the male fellowships that we have. right? I enjoy us being together and talking about the things of God. I, I enjoy that. I mean, I love Chris Church. But he doesn't even hold a candle to Virginia Ware. Right? I love being with my wife. I enjoy spending time with her and talking with her and bouncing ideas off of her and her telling me how wrong I could be uh, in those things. Right? God could have made another man and this would have filled a gap. It would have filled the time. There would have been conversations. There, there could have been help in work and all those things but not as perfectly as with woman. The reason is very simple. Man is not a helpmeet with man. Only woman can fulfill this role. Only woman can fulfill this need. Only a woman can. So God then makes a helper, verse 18b. God's solution is to make Adam a compatible or comparable helper. The New King James says compatible, right? The Old King James, and they don't have that on their cover, but that's what it is. The Old King James has meat. Now, this is M-E-E-T, meat, not mate. We often <laughs> confuse the two. And it's more than that. And the reason uh, that we don't want to confuse that is because this probably is the best word to be used for what is being said here, even though this Old English word is no longer in usage, Right? This is not just the idea of a mate, somebody to have physical relations with or somebody to spend time with or somebody that will help you do things. No, it is like you are companions but has the idea of suited to and opposite with. You're face-to-face -face with, but opposite. Okay, so it's like a puzzle piece. Women are like a puzzle piece to men. You fit together. Now, not to get too detailed, but physically you can see that, right, husbands? You can see that you fit together. Y'all are compatible to one another. Right? So, we have the idea of two males, and they have companionship, and they love each other, and they're brotherly with each other. But they're not compatible with one another. They're not compatible with one another. And so... We need to see that God made what was perfectly to fit with man. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that two men can fit together this not perfectly. No. No, that is not what God intended. That is not what God intended. God intended it to be male and female. We're going to see that not only does God create marriage, but He defines it. He defines marriage. He tells us what it is. And so we're going to see that man could not be a helper for man. So um, this, this, so the Hebrew gives the idea of this at the same time being opposite and fitting to go together, fitted to go together. And this is true in so many ways. 
Think about lovemaking and roles and gifting. What women bring to the marriage and to the church is indispensable. We have been told for the last 100 years that the church, and specifically the Bible, disdains women. It demeans them. It enslaves them. It, all that. But the answer to that should be, no, it's the very opposite. Women can only find their value as God has created them to be. And as we define women in that way. Because as I said before, when you say that women have to be men to have value, then you, they lose their womanness. They lose their femininity. The only way to honor a woman is to honor womanhood. Not as manhood, but as womanhood. You're different and distinct. You have your own gifts. You bring things to the table that men can never bring. No matter how much they emote and effeminate they may try to be, they are not, nor can they ever be women. Ever. I don't care what you do to their bodies physically. You can't do that. They don't become women. And to say that they do is to demean and devalue a woman. Period. Now, I'll get on the soapbox about this because I love women. I do. I, I, I don't mean it in a bad way. I love that, that God has created women the way they have. Women make emotional connections with males in their lives that men can barely understand, much less duplicate. What do you mean what I said was hurtful? Seemed pretty straightforward to me. What do you mean I should... You saying I should coddle them? No, just show them you, you love them. You don't just have to correct. My wife used to say, could you start with, you know, how good things, the good things they're doing. They're doing 15 good things and you're focusing on one bad thing. We need that. We need that. We need women to nurture. Men aren't good at that. Just aren't. You know, I, I mean... I'd be out playing and I'd come in with a skint knee and crying. You know what my daddy would say? Suck it up, son. It's just skin. Go back out. It's going to grow back. Okay. You know what my, my mom would dote over me? And she would clean it out properly. She didn't clean it lightly. She cleaned it correctly to get it clean. My dad's like, go get gangrene. Go play. Leave me alone. Right? And so there's a difference. We need that. We need that, what women bring. We need it. The wife is her husband's greatest earthly gift from God. The physical blessings are just one small part of what is in view here with the woman making man complete. She is the thing that was most needed and God provided it. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, notice here that Solomon doesn't say he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. Just a wife is a good thing. You know why? Because, man, you set the tone in the home. If you want a good wife, be a good man. You want to, be a, you want to have a good wife? Be a good husband. Lead her. Serve her. Sacrifice for her. Make it where she can't do anything but love you. Right? 
and, and I don't want to hear I've sacrificed enough. You've not hung on a cross. You ain't there yet. You ain't hung on a cross. You ain't there yet. Because that's your example. That's what husbandhood is to look like. Okay? So, the wife is a good thing. It is comparable to finding a treasure to have found one. So then God builds desire in Adam uh, for what he is going to give him. I'm sorry, y'all. I am frying up here. <laughs> so now we need uh, to first see that this is, a, is translated a little backwards. All right? So in verse 19, we read, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now, this has brought some uh, problems for some liberal readers of the text. They seem to think that here we're being told the opposite of what we see in chapter 1. So uh, what we, we need to see is that Moses is telling us that after the man was placed in the garden, then God began to form animals from the ground. That, that's what it seems like it's saying. But chapter 1 told us that at the first of day 6, God made these animals... Then he made man. This is easily overcome when we see that the words should be understood thusly. God brought every beast of the field and bird of the air which he formed out of the ground. See, that makes it much different. He's designating the animals he brought, those that he formed out of the ground. He's not saying this happened and then this happened. It's not a chronological order. He's identifying the animals that he brought. Um, so this then is not telling us the order, right? But, but just the animals that are included. All the ones he formed out of the ground. Now, this then excludes the creeping animals and the sea creatures with the, with the wild animals. And the reason is, these animals which are brought had utility for man. So this is not, you know, we, we'd ask, well, why, you know, did, why did Adam call that big fish a whale? Well, first of all, it's not a fish. It's a mammal. But... But why did he call it a whale? Well, he didn't. Because Adam didn't name the whales. He didn't name the sea creatures. And he didn't name the wild beasts. It was the beasts of the field, domesticated animals, and birds. Okay? And the reason is because they had utility. He, he was going to put them to use. He could use them, uh, use these animals as helpers. So what we see is dogs, cats, falcons, pigs, and cows. Those kind of things. These could be useful and even provide a level of companionship. They also would have had their mates pointing Adam to his lack of a mate. He didn't have one. Adam then claims dominion in verses 19 through 20. God gives Adam this task of naming animals for another reason. The one who was in charge was to name those in his service. We see this very clearly as God renames people once they are his. Abram, big daddy, become Abraham, the father of many nations. Right? And then Jacob, the wrestler, becomes Israel. After he wrestles and strives with God and overcomes. So this was solidifying what God had proclaimed. God said that he was going to have man to take dominion over these animals, over these things. And then tells Adam to take this dominion. This is what Adam was doing. This is not an Adam naming species, right, but kinds. So we, we run into a problem. Day six seems to be longer than, than, than what, it, what it should be. 
but he's not he's not saying you know that's a libra this is you know a lion this is no he's not and he's not saying this is a calico and this is a Siamese. he's saying that's a cat done right that's a that's a falcon or or, or a carrion bird right these are right he just he's naming groups of animals he's not naming every single individual animal now if you want to take a superhuman view, and he looks like Superman naming this, 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 this is just really fast, that's fine, I'm not going to argue with you. I don't think that's what we see in the text. I don't think that's what's, what's being said here. Uh, God formed his sons broad then. Verses 21 through 22, God places Adam in a deep sleep. Now this is more, this is not like a nap, but like a coma, right? It's a, it's a deep sleep. In fact, it, it is so such a deep sleep, it's more akin to death than sleep. Then God takes hold of Adam and wounds his side. This means that God opened up or pierced Adam's side and took out a portion of his rib. So God is dividing Adam to make a new thing. Now, so we need to see this is going to be a pattern throughout the Bible. God takes hold of something, and in order to grow it and prosper it, he divides it. Then he brings it back together to produce something new and better. Right? Husbands, we can say that, boy, he did that, didn't he? He made something new and better. Alone and worthless, together and great. Right? It's, it's just the pattern for which we'll see him doing what he does. So he divides and makes a new thing. He heals the wound. And God closes up the flesh as before and sets out to make his companion. He takes the rib and from it makes the first woman. Now, we need to clear up some things. Men, you do not have one less rib than your wife. That is a fable. And the reason is, that could never be. If you took out my rib, but you left the membrane over it intact, my body would grow that rib back. It's the only regenerating bone in the body. It will come back. So, right? So all this speculation about man is, no, we don't, we don't need that. You know what we need? We just need the Bible and faith to believe what the Bible says is true. And the Bible says that God opened his side, took a rib out, and from that rib made a woman. Right? So he, so he does that. So he takes the rib, and from it he makes the first woman. This is the picture. This is a picture of the gospel, verses 20 through 22. Now let's look at this section again and point out where it shows us how God was going to make his church. You've probably already identified many places. So let's see how this is connected. The first thing is the sleep like death Adam experienced. Notice that this is the sleep brought on by God. John 10, 17 through 18 reads, Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. Jesus died at the command of his father. There's a silly woman going around in the church now telling everybody that God didn't have anything to do with Jesus' death. That's one heresy. I mean, besides the fact that it, that it just absolutely ignores chapter 4 of, of Acts, it is a heresy to say that God could not have stopped 
the crucifixion of his son. Just heresy. God commanded that Christ go die for his brother. Okay? So next we notice where God wounds at. It is in his son. John 19, 34 reads, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So, in order for that Jesus' bride would be created, he was wounded in his side. The blood and water are proof of death, but they also point to the life of the church as we are baptized in water and drink Christ's blood. Adam is surely spoken of as a type of Christ, and Christ is the true Israel. So, cross-reference that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a long discourse on the first and last Adam, right? The first Adam we're seeing now, the last Adam is Jesus, all right? Then Christ is the true Israel, and we see that in Matthew 2, 14 and 15. The word of the Lord reads, When he arose, he took the young child, Jesus, and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is quoted from Hosea 11.1, 1, which reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Little side note, just for, for interest, right? This points to Christ being the true Israel. I also notice this is quoted as Jesus fled the promised land of Israel for physical Egypt as Israel was now Egypt and Sodom. That's what we're going to see John calling in the Revelation. So, out of Egypt, he called his son when he called him to Egypt. You see that? This then, uh, taking a piece of Adam and making a new covenant is a picture of the true church being formed from a part of Israel who had apostatized. God takes the church out of, in AD 70, out of Israel. He takes the church out of and makes the, the Israel of God. Try not to confuse you with the language, but it, but it is what it is. Um, so, so that's what we see. The bride presented to the man points to our wedding day as well as theirs. God has prepared for his son a bride and has presented her to him. Christ came and died to gain this bride, and she is now being perfected through water, bread, and wine. Amen. Lastly, in one sense, the woman was a descendant of the man. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9 reads, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for woman, but woman for the man. So, so here we have, we have a, in a sense, God takes Adam and takes part of Adam out and creates Eve. And we're going to see this bone of bone and flesh of flesh, right? That literally was true. That literally was true. And so in a sense, in a sense, she was a descendant of Adam. In a sense. And we see that's how she failed. If she was absent from the lineage of Adam, when he failed covenantally, she would have been unchanged. You get that? It's all his descendants. She's, in a sense, not fully, but in a sense, a descendant. So she fell as well. Does that make sense? Okay. It's, it's, it has to be that way. It has to be that way. Right? So, um, 
And this again points to our relationship uh, to Christ, our husband. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Now, we covered this. I, I think I took probably two weeks to preach this text. I will not uh, get that in depth with it this morning. But uh, Hebrews 2, and we'll, we'll start in verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10, the word of the Lord reads, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sacrifices and those who are being sanctified are all of one. I'm sorry, for he who is who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For, for which reason he is not, not ashamed in calling them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am. I, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lives subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. All right? So he had to be our brethren. He had to be a partaker in the same flesh and blood that we are. Likewise, his bride had to be that as well. We see Adam and her had to be related. Um, so Jesus is our elder brother and the source of our new life in this body. So then the first wedding takes place. The reaction of the man is not fully expressed in the English. Adam, having been given his great this great desire, now has that desire met. He is overjoyed that God has given him this bride. He's overjoyed. He's overwhelmed. And he proclaims, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And you will be called woman because you came from man, right? You will be called Isha because you came from Ish. The statement that Adam makes is both accurate and prophetic. The woman is literally flesh and bone from Adam. But they were going to become one flesh and bone together. This is so often missed by even long married couples. To be one flesh is to begin to share everything and grow together in such a way as to think the same and work for the same things. Everything. Everything. Well, even that, I'm ashamed of that. Everything. You have to share everything. And I'm talking to you men because your hearts are stonier. I'm just telling you. It's harder to get to those things in you. Because you don't want to talk about them. 
I don't want to talk about that. That's stupid. Well, if she don't know it, she can't live with you fully. You can't be one if you hide these things from her. Your insecurities, your fears, your dreads, your dislikes, your longings. She needs to know these things. And she needs to be gracious. Just throw that out there for her too. Um, he calls her Isha because she was taken from Ish. We can see a, a semblance of what's being said by Adam in woman and man in the English, but this is just a happy accident. The old English from which woman comes was expressing that a woman was a female man. That's just what it means. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 11, though, women came from men. This Luther wanted to convey uh, so much that he added a new word in the German, in his German translation, that uh, rather than using the common word Frau for woman, uh, it's Mannen, M-A-N-N-I-N, uh, to express that it came out of man, M-A-N-N. Their word is, sounds the same as ours. Um, but notice that once again, God has divided to unite. God took woman out of man and brought her to him that they may become one. This is then going to lead to more people through procreation. This leads to the formation of new families multiplying through dividing. Verse 24. So there is a statement that is the statement concerning leaving and cleaving. Many say that this is Moses. You know, it's a commentary. It's what he says. He's explaining what's going on. And that may well be true, right? But it seems that Christ is giving God the credit for the words. Matthew 19, 3 through 6 reads, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, The one who made them said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no man separate. So it seems that God was here proclaiming the bonds of marriage. He created marriage and then he defines it for us. Right? One man, one woman for life. We hear that all the time. Right? You mean Christians? Don't you understand love has no bounds? Yes, we know that sinful love does have no bounds. We know that sinful emotion and sinful desires have no bounds. God has boundaries. Amen. And they're there for a reason. They're there like fences stop kids from going to the road and getting killed. It's the same thing. There's only true freedom in bounds. Only true freedom in boundaries. Right? How do you know your neighbor's not going to till up your field and take your land and produce off of it and make money? Because there's a boundary marker there that I can go by and say, thank you for plowing my field, but I will plant it as I wish. Thank you very much. Go away. That's what freedom is. Freedom is not doing whatever I want to do. If you think that works, take your two-year-old and let him have free reign of the house. No, that's foolishness. Right. It's the same thing with you. It would be foolish for God to let us sinful people decide what is right in our own eyes. Why? Because we would kill and eat each other. We would devour each other. We would. 
And so we have to understand there has to be bounds. It's not a matter of hate or not hating. It's a matter of love, actually. I love you so much that I'm going to tell you you're going to destroy your body. You're going to have bad relationships, and it's going to kill you. The wages of sin is always death. Always death. And that is only removed from us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only He can remove that sentence of death from us. But not in such a way that it allows us to sin without penalty. That's not what grace, not law, means. Grace, not law, means that when you continue to sin, God is not going to freshly condemn you to hell right, as He would have right to do. Why? Because that punishment has been laid on another. And it no longer belongs to you. Even that. And, and, and we, we can tell our Armenian brothers, it was future at the cross. It's future now. Future grace. It covers everything. And if it doesn't cover everything, it doesn't cover what was before the cross. Christ must die afresh every day to see new sinners saved. And that's not what happens. We know that from the Word of God. Again, soapbox. But God created it and He designed it. So this means that the family unit is to be separated through marriage to create a new family unit. Now, mamas, you need to hear this. I wish there was other mothers here. I'm not going to list them because we're on Facebook. But I wish there were other mothers here who could hear this. The man is to leave his father and mother and cleave, glue himself to, stick himself as tight as he can to his wife. To his wife. But she don't love him like I do. She don't know how I like his food. he likes his food cooked. She don't know how he likes his socks heated up and... Quit! <laughs> Stop it! Stop doing that! Get out of her way and let her be a, a wife. Support her, love her, encourage her. That's what marriage is to be like. And I'm picking on mother-in-laws of the husband for one specific reason. Right? You hear all kinds of mother-in-law jokes. None of them are about the husband's mom. Don't talk about my mama. Well, quit talking about hers. It's easy for me. I had the greatest mother-in-law to ever lived. Absolutely did. But we need to understand the reason she was so great is she didn't, she didn't get in our business. She didn't tell Virginia what she should or shouldn't do with me. She didn't tell me what I should be as a husband. Unless it was in the Word of God. Now, she would tell me that. But she never meddled. She didn't get involved. And that's what we need to understand. You're no longer that family unit anymore. It's painful sometimes, ain't it, baby? But it is glorious that God takes a man and a woman from two sinful families and puts them together and makes them one flesh and builds another unit together, another home, another covenant family and produces more children is awesome. It is great. Right? And so, uh, men are under authority until they move out and get a wife. Then, they take that role. They become the authority. This is true even of the wife who also is to glue herself to her husband as he is to do to her. It is her responsibility to cling to her husband. What a foolish idea it would be to say that Christ clings to us and we don't have to cling to him. 
Okay, well, that's the picture we have of what marriage is to look like. Our marriage is to look like Christ and the church. So just as the church has to cling to her head, so does the wife have to cling to her husband. Nothing, not even our parents, are to come between us and our spouses. One flesh is best fostered through physical intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5 reads, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fa uh, fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Relations in marriage is a physical memorial of our vows to each other. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So we see two passages here that point to the marriage bed and physical intimacy between man and woman, and we see the dangers, right? What is the devil's foothold? Well, the writer of Hebrews says it's fornication and adultery. That is the temptation. So, husbands, if you deny your wife the affection due her, you're tempting her to sin. Wife, if you're, you're denying the affection that's due your husband, you are tempting him to sin. Remember, your body does not belong to you. Men do not take that for granted. I had counseled a couple, and he, boy, he harped on this constantly. She, she, won't, she won't give me the affection due me. She won't give me the affection due me. Her body doesn't belong to me. It belongs. It doesn't belong to her. Belongs to me. Belongs to me. It's mine. I can do what I want to with it. You know what her retort was? Well, your body belongs to me. I'm going to tell you what you can do with your body. We need to understand there should be a fostering of intimacy in our home. So, men, you're not getting the affection you feel is due to you. How are you romancing your wife? How are you wooing her to yourself constantly? How are you showing her that you're going to die daily for you? How are you putting you, you behind her? How are you putting her first? How are you elevating and glorifying God in her? You want affection? Be affectionate. Don't walk around like a dog. Act like you love her. Die for her. And it will come. And it will come. But we need to understand this renews our covenant promises with one another when we make love to our spouses. That's why consummation at, on the wedding night is such a big deal. What are you consummating? The covenant you have made before God and all your friends. And every time you come together again, you're saying, I do, again. All over again, you're saying, I do. This act is one of the best ways to foster sacrificial love in the marriage. If our hearts are right in this area, we are giving all of ourselves for the need and pleasure of the other, which in turn will spill over into other areas of our relationship. I want you to get this picture, man. I'm coming to my wife for sexual intimacy because I want to please her, whether I get pleased or not. Get that mental picture and idea in your head as you go to your wife. 
It's not about me, it's about her. It's not about me, it's about her. And if you know there are things that are going on that would not foster intimacy, put her before yourself. Put her before yourself. You see, this spills over. This is not only... This is not all one flesh means, but it promotes the other aspects of the one fleshness as we share in other in these in these times where we glorify God with our bodies. It shows it I mean it should grow our communication. We're going to see that that there's an aspect of marriage when you get to a certain point, when you get to a certain age, Getting naked shouldn't be a big deal anymore. You've seen each other a thousand times. You're not ashamed of it. You're not, you don't hide parts of your body anymore. Why? Because you've been together 27 years. You've seen it all. But there's nothing, there's nothing right. There's, but, but it's this comfort, this, this joy in that that comes that is beautiful. Even as God in his humor makes things not be where they used to be. Right? They just, you're going, that's new. So the, the thing that we need to understand is we become one. We become one, and it, and it grows affection and communication. We are able to talk to each other about things that we wouldn't talk to anybody else about. Right? As, as we, I mean, because when you're able to do that, guys, there, there should be nothing that you should hide. It should grow our attachment and affection for one another. There, there's, a, there's a beauty in marriage. After this physical intimacy, there should be a joy and an enjoying of each other, not just in the physical, but in just being together. There, 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 there should be, hey, you want some more? You, you need something? I mean, that should be the reaction. It should be, how now can I serve you more? I'm going to serve you all the more. Right? There should be a thankfulness from both parties. Um, so, all right, we'll get off of that. They were naked and not ashamed, verse 25. We are told that they were both naked. Now, I say it as if it's a bad thing. My, my southern accent makes it sound like they were doing something wrong. But, but we are told that they were both naked. This, of course, points to sinlessness. But it also seems to be literal that... They were actually without clothing. They are naked because they were newly created. They had no garments of title or honor because they were newly born. Uh, not born in the sense that we think that they are newly created. Garments that will be given men later. They were with each other and were not made to feel as though they needed to cover themselves. They felt no shame. They were open and sin did not cause this shame. They were as comfortable with each other as couples who had been together for years, as I just described. But this is not the main point of what is being said. They were unashamed because they trusted God. Psalm 22, 3-5 reads, But you are holy and throned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. When we trust in God, He will not put us to shame. Psalm 25, 20 says, Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust 
in you. Take your hand out. Several times in the Psalms, it, is, it seems that the trust in Yahweh, and uh, they trusted in Yahweh, and therefore they had not sinned, thus they were not ashamed. So let's look at these. Psalm 31, 1 reads, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Psalm 31, 17. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord. For I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Psalm 37, 18 through 20. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Like smoke they shall vanish away. Psalm 119, 45-47 And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will speak of, of your testimonies also before kings, and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, I mean, I could have done a hundred of these. The idea is you trust, you don't, you don't have shame. You're not ashamed. Adam and Eve, at the point of their creation, were naked and unashamed. They were unashamed because they trusted their Creator. They had faith that what He said was true. This is what is being said here. So may God reveal to us, uh, re reveal to us, and glory in the grace we are given, both in women and in marriage. May we renew covenant with our spouse and joyfully express the sacrificial love that Christ displayed to us not only in the marriage bed, but every day. May we live unashamedly as we fully trust and rest in Jesus Christ, not only for our salvation, but how we should then live before Him blamelessly. Amen? Let us pray. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this, your word, God, and how it has blessed us, God. We thank you, Father, that you have given us the second and last Adam, that he has died for our sins, that we would be his bride. We praise you, God, for this picture that we see this morning because, Lord, even now, we're going to have a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we rejoice in, God, this good gift you have given us in the broken body and the shed blood of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, our husband. And it is in his holy name we pray. Amen. So as I